Even in the concrete jungle, nature is far from elusive. The New York City Parks Department oversees more than 30,000 acres of land in all five boroughs. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Parks have long provided a welcome respite from busy street life. But for a lot of people, they became even more important during the COVID-19 pandemic. There has definitely been more interest in New York City, in the outdoors, in these public spaces that we share, especially over the events of the past 18 or more months. That's Andrew Brown-John. He's an urban park ranger in New York City. Urban park rangers have been helping New Yorkers and visitors discover and explore the city's natural world since 1979. In this episode of Cityscape, Brown John talks about his role as an urban park ranger and discusses some of the most fascinating natural wonders New York City has to offer. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me today. So first and foremost, what road led you to becoming a park ranger? Uh, Well, it was actually a fairly circuitous one. Uh, I studied organismic and evolutionary biology in college and spent a fair amount of time after graduating, hoping to find a way to do that in some sort of constructive manner aside from being in academia. And that eventually led me here to New York City and to our remarkable Parks Department where we have exactly that sort of job. Where are you from? I grew up uh, just outside of Syracuse, New York. So uh, New York State, and its history are very familiar to me, and it's really exciting to be a little bit closer to the center of the action, uh, both geologically and historically. So what are among the things that fascinated you most as you became entrenched in New York as a park ranger? So one thing I think that a lot of people don't realize is just how much land in New York City is devoted to parks uh, and how many unique landscapes are present in those spaces. Uh, We now have more than 30,000 acres of land in the city devoted to parks. And a lot of those, because they're at the periphery of the city, uh, can sometimes be overlooked. Uh, Some of them are especially well-known, some of the largest parks like Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx. Uh, But people are often surprised when they find out that uh, the area where my main office is located, Marine Park, is actually the largest park in Brooklyn and not one of the more well-known places like Prospect Park. Tell us more about Marine Park. So Marine Park is actually a pretty fascinating location in Brooklyn. Uh, It is located on an inlet to Jamaica Bay uh, as part of the Plum Beach Channel. Uh, It is pretty interesting because it's one of the last remaining uh, tidal salt marshes in the city. At one time, most of the coastland of New York City would have been some form of tidal salt marsh, but most of that has been replaced over time uh, through various fill and construction projects to be something much different than it is now. Um, That's true for both the coastline of Manhattan, which was very rapidly converted to dock space and uh, converted into useful harbor space, uh, as well as uh, all of these coastal areas of Long Island that have especially been developed for residential uses. Um, So Marine Park actually when you look out, uh, is that gives you a glimpse into what uh, Native Americans would have seen 
before Europeans arrived and also what it would have been like uh, for the first Europeans who arrived uh, exploring this place 500, 400 years ago. Wow, that's a pretty fantastic view, isn't it? Uh, it is quite spectacular. Uh, even today, uh, if you sort of blot out the Marine Parkway Bridge to the Rockaways with your thumb, uh, you can kind of almost imagine that you're in another time out here, uh, early in the morning when it's just the shorebirds and you. It's, it's quite remarkable. And of course, there was another time in New York City, as you're pointing out, a time without skyscrapers, without bridges, with land and a lot of rock, right? Absolutely. So some of the oldest rocks that are present in New York City uh, sort of predate life as we know it for the most part. Uh, Some of those rocks are a little over than a billion years old, which is uh, a little bit almost too much, I think, for the human mind to fathom on some level. That's such a big number and such an insane amount of time to think about. Where do we find the oldest rock in New York City? So uh, it's actually quite appropriate that we are conversing on WFUV because the oldest rocks uh, share the namesake of your home institution, Fordham University. Uh, Those are called the Fordham Nice. So the Fordham Nice is what we would call a Precambrian rock. So those are rocks that date from a time before there is uh, there are many macro fossils or uh, basically records in the rock of organisms that are made up of more than one cell. Uh, and those Fordham Nices uh, are basically rocks that have been transformed through intense pressure and heat uh, over a large period of time. So one thing that their presence indicates about where New York City is now is that once, a long, long, long time ago, uh, this landscape actually looked very, very different from the relatively calm one that we have here now. There's also Manhattan marble, right? Yeah, so there are actually two other locally famous rock formations. There is the sort of Tuckahoe marble formation, uh, which is also known colloquially as Inwood marble, and is also the bedrock that gave Marble Hill its name back when it was just an island sort of floating off in uh, the Harlem River before it was actually filled in to be part of the Bronx. Uh, And there is also the very locally prominent Manhattan Schist, uh, which is important for a number of reasons, not the least of which for me as a park ranger is that it grants us a lot of the dramatic landscapes that we see in Central Park. Talk to me more about that, because you can actually still see this in Central Park. You have to not necessarily even just look for it. You just have to pay attention to it. That's right. So one of the things that's really interesting about Central Park is that it really is heavily landscaped, but one of the things that was very brilliant on the part of the designers, Calvert Vox and Frederick Law Olmsted, was that they did a good job of incorporating, they had a good eye for the natural elements that were going to make uh, important possible features um, for patrons to enjoy when they visited. Uh, They knew which places were going to require a lot of work, maybe an archway or a water feature, uh, in in spaces that weren't going to actually hold something useful like a reservoir, uh, and which spaces 
kind of spoke for themselves already, like some of these major rock outcrops. Uh, and they're scattered all throughout the park, but especially closer to the northern reaches, sort of away from some of the places closer to the southern end of the park. Um, although there are a few now that I think of it also down by where some of the ice rinks are close to the Grand Army Plaza in the southeast corner as well. But pretty much anywhere you look where there's a quick change in topography, uh, sometimes you see a, a grassy hill, like you get the Great Hill in the northwest corner of the park. Uh, but anywhere that there's even the slightest bit of rock exposed, there's a very good chance that that's Manhattan schist. You also mentioned Inwood. Is that also a good place to go check out rocks in New York City? It most certainly is. Both uh, So Inwood and just a little bit south of there, some of the highest are, are some of the highest points in New York City, and they are the highest points in Manhattan. Uh, the rock outcrops in Inwood Hill Park, as well as the really dramatic ones in Fort Tryon Park, uh, both contain a variety of different rocks. There are uh, mostly still Manhattan schists there, but you can catch an eye, uh, a, a view of some other rocks as well. Um, some of those nieces, possibly even some of those uh, marbles. What about where you are based in Brooklyn now? So the thing about Long Island is it is very, very geologically different uh, in a lot of ways than the, the sort of more mainland, even though Manhattan is an island. Uh, it was once historically most of it part of the North American mainland um, and the Bronx as well and parts of Staten Island. Uh, but Long Island is composed actually entirely of uh, sediments and loose material that was deposited by glaciers between 20,000 and 15,000 years ago uh, at their greatest extent during the most recent glaciation period, the most recent ice age. Uh, so wherever you dig, if you try to dig very deep anywhere in Long Island, um, whether it's Brooklyn, Queens, or further out, you actually never really reach anything that resembles bedrock. You get very, very firm land that is sufficiently suitable for building, for tunneling. Um, we do have plenty of underground subways here that manage just fine, but uh, there's not much to say in the way of proper bedrock, the way that you actually see in Manhattan. Um, everything that's here is um, piled up quite high on top of the bedrock, uh, what we would call the continental shelf that is actually much, much, much deeper than it is just across the East River. Where would you suggest people go in Brooklyn to check out rocks at their finest? Ah, so some of the most interesting glacial features that remain are highlighted in some of the highest points in Long Island, uh, especially here in Brooklyn. Uh, so those uh, those high points compose what we would call the terminal moraine that the glacier left behind. Uh, that marks the highest uh, the highest point of all of these sediments that were left behind by these glaciers uh, that was bulldozed up as they slowly plowed their way down over thousands and thousands of years from the northern reaches. Uh, so some of those very high points in Brooklyn uh, are not located in parks proper. Uh, the highest point in Brooklyn is Battle Hill in Greenwood Cemetery, uh, so named uh, for the American retreat during the Battle of Brooklyn in 17 August. 
August 1776. We're actually just coming up on that anniversary, uh, as well as a few locations in what is now Prospect Park, as well as Sunset Park. Uh, so some of the best actual park high points. The, the views from Sunset Park are of course legendary and uh, one of, is the source of one of the namesakes for that park. And that's because that's among the highest points of that terminal moraine. And Lookout Hill and Prospect Park, uh, while not uh, a proper rock feature, not something uh, not a single uh, monolith left behind by a glacier is another part, a hill bulldozed up by those glaciers. Um, the views in summer are not particularly spectacular because it is nice and grown over with trees now, but in the winter you have a, a full view out to Coney Island as well as even, even further down to Sandy Hook in New Jersey and a, quite a remarkable view of, of, the, uh, of the New York Harbor and the bay. Is there a place or a way to scale rocks in the New York City park system? Uh, so that's a good question. There are, uh, as far as I know, uh, there aren't really rock outcroppings of that sort uh, in Brooklyn or Queens, although there are a few places with dramatic, dramatic changes in elevation. Some of those, say, in Brooklyn Bridge Park, you can get the view up past the BQE into Brooklyn Heights, or if you're on the Brooklyn Heights promenade, the view down below. Um, those, of course, you can't really scale safely. Uh, that would definitely uh, not be a recommendation I'd make. But a lot of the outcrops that uh, are visible in Central Park are more than safe to actually scramble upon um, some of the bigger ones that are all grown over with grass. Uh, and those are also worth a closer look in a lot of uh, times because they're also, uh, they, they feature not only the history of the rocks themselves, which in the case of the Manhattan Schist is about 50 million years or more of history, uh, but more recent indicators of local activity. Uh, a lot of those rocks still feature these really interesting northwest uh, to southeast facing gouges that were carved out by glaciers again about 20,000 years ago. Uh, so while um, possibly conducting a little bit of erosion of your own by scraping a few pebbles off here or there as you scramble up, uh, you will see that, you know, ice and the elements have been doing the same thing for thousands, uh, millions of years. What more can you tell me about that area around the Brooklyn Bridge? Uh, so the area around the Brooklyn Bridge is actually pretty fascinating because uh, the, the geologic history of the harbor area played an important role in the building of that first major East River crossing, the Brooklyn Bridge. One of the, one of the uh, major engineering developments that led to the building of the Brooklyn Bridge in the first place uh, was the development of these underwater caissons um, that were wooden structures that allowed um, both engineers and construction workers to enter a pressurized environment under the water of the East River and dig out sediment uh, to place the foundations for the bridge, for the tower, the two towers of the bridge on either side of the river. Uh, the process of doing this was hoped to lead on both sides to stable bedrock uh, on which the rest of the towers of the bridge would eventually settle. What ended up happening was that actually, as the caissons were being dug on either side, 
uh, only in one side did the caisson actually hit bedrock. Uh, on the other side of the river, they never got there. They kept digging and digging and digging, and all they got was thicker and thicker mud. Mud that in many cases, uh, it was clear after closer, closer observation had not been disturbed in more than hundreds of years and probably thousands. Mud that had been sitting there since well before Europeans had arrived in the area. Um, upon making that realization and upon realizing how compacted and how sturdy this mud was, they gave up digging that caisson anymore and continued to build the tower above it. So one side of the Brooklyn Bridge does not rest firmly on bedrock, but this is proven um, in its continued presence, not to matter. Wow, that's a fascinating piece of history I've never heard before. Thanks for sharing that one. Uh, well, I certainly owe that uh, to the work of uh, David McCullough, whose text, The the Great Bridge, is, I think, still uh, sort of the foremost authority on that history. And it's quite a great read. What role can people play in preserving nature and rocks in New York City? That's actually a great question. Uh, there has definitely been uh, more interest in New York City in the outdoors, in these public spaces that we share, especially over the events of the past 18 or more months. And I would certainly say that we welcome all of this interest and it is really wonderful to see just how much use our parks have gotten over this time. And to see also uh, so many new visitors realize just how important these shared public spaces and these natural spaces are both for the health of the city and for the health of its citizens. Um, but one of the best things that we can do to preserve some of these spaces is to stay in the places where visitors are welcome. Clearly marked trails on maps, um, places that are laid down with gravel or wood chips where there are signs or trail markers present. Any place where there are tall plants growing uh, where it doesn't seem abundantly clear that human presence is invited, we would de more, more than recommend that people uh, stay uh, on the trail, especially in some of these protected natural areas. Uh, Marine Park, for example, is what we would call a forever wild site. Um, these are places that we are trying to keep as close to their um, pristine sort of natural uh, environment as possible. And any place, the, the signs aren't that obvious, but any place that is listed as a forever wild site is especially a place where the best thing you can possibly do when visiting is to stay on the trail. And just like if you were to go camping, to take out uh, every, everything that you bring in with you. So um, take only photographs and uh, leave only footprints. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. I was recently in Hawaii, and of course it's taboo to take rocks off of the island. Is it also taboo for any reason, even beyond superstition, to take rocks out of a park? So rocks, not so much. Uh, there are specific park rules and regulations that uh, govern the protection of all of the living things in parks. Um, in general, uh, if especially if you're on a gravel path uh, and you find a rock that you think is pretty, I don't think anyone's going to notice or uh, bother you if, if you take a, a little piece of history with you. 
If, on the other hand, you uh, were to, say, be visiting a scenic rock out outcrop and you were going to intentionally uh, take a tool with you to try and remove some of that rock, that would definitely be run, run counter to our purposes here and uh, sharing uh, and preserving all of these spaces for New Yorkers. Um, if you were interested in conducting research, that's the sort of thing where you could get permits from both the city and the state to conduct that sort of research. Uh, letting us know your interest also might help us share what we know with you uh, about uh, some of these things as we're doing today. What more can you tell me about your role as a park ranger and the daily responsibilities of a New York City park ranger? Uh, so because I'm wearing a headset right now to get, give you the best audio possible, I, I'm not wearing my big straw Smokey the Bear hat. Uh, so I can't make my us usual joke about the many hats that we wear. Uh, but one of the things that's really compelling about this job is the amount of different responsibilities that we take on in a given day. When we lead uh, programs for the public, which is definitely my favorite activity, one of the things that we say is that there are three main duties that we have, which is, of course, to educate the public like we do on those programs and also uh, like what I'm doing now, as well as to uh, protect the wildlife in the parks. And one of the ways that we do that is if people see sick or injured animals in a park, the best thing to do if they do not feel equipped to do that themselves, and there's no reason that they should, is that they can contact us. And we have the equipment and training to collect those animals and transport them to rehabilitators uh, or other specialists who can provide them care. Um, and the last thing that is really typically enumerated is that we are a part of the law enforcement body of the city. Uh, we are all uh, peace officers through the state of New York. And so uh, it, one of our jobs is to make sure that everyone is staying safe in the park and following the rules. So uh, the, the way in which this manifests on a typical day is that uh, when I'm out on the trail in Marine Park, if I see someone who's not on the trail, I just ask them to return to it and explain kindly why uh, we all, again, want to protect these spaces and uh, have them for generations of New Yorkers to come. You mentioned the wildlife. How varied is the wildlife beyond squirrels and pigeons? Again, this is one of the things that I personally found surprising along with all of the different habitats. This salt marsh habitat here is very, very diverse all year round. Uh, even in the winter, it can actually be at its most dazzling because we have all kinds of winter waterfowl that have migrated from parts north. Uh, the Central Park Reservoir is kind of a microcosm example of that. Uh, where uh, I remember the first time I saw a wood duck, which is actually the North American uh, sort of uh, cousin, I would say, of the famous Mandarin duck that visited a few years ago or um, appeared mysteriously. Uh, they are absolutely stunning and technicolor and it was just swimming around the reservoir in the middle of a very cold January day. And then I came to learn a couple of years later as a ranger here in Brooklyn that they actually nest every year in Prospect Park. So if from, from things like that, from the charismatic things to the hundreds of different insect species that I've encountered, um, I specifically studied insects when I was in college and also for a time afterward in graduate school. So 
that's the thing that I pay the most attention to because there's also just more diversity to be had uh, with so many smaller organisms. So what's one of the more fascinating insects in New York City that you can tell us about? Well, just yesterday, I actually saw a fly that I had never been familiar with. Uh, there are a number of different types of flies, groups of flies that actually um, act serve as mimics. So what they do is they appear to be some other organism that they are not. And some of the most well-known fly mimics are hoverflies, which look quite a lot like bees. They have bright yellow and black stripes. Um, they have the same sort of, they feature many of the same flower visiting habits. Some of them will even have a tapered abdomen that looks like it bears a stinger, even though it does not. Uh, but they have certain telltale features that make it clear that they are not actually who they appear to be. Uh, so their facial features are different. Usually the shape of their face is different, uh, which owes to certain evolutionary structures that are unique to flies. Uh, and one of the other things about flies that's always a giveaway is that uh, while bees and wasps have two pairs of wings, even though they can often be linked so it looks like they only have one, Flies only have one functioning pair of wings. Um, the hind set that is present in most other insects has been re reduced to a sort of stabilizing gyroscope to help them do all the kinds of crazy somersaults that they do in midair. So um, one of the ways, if you're not afraid to take a closer look at some of these flies, to try and figure out if it's a wasp or not is to look uh, to see whether or not it has one or two pairs of wings. Uh, and just yesterday, I actually encountered uh, a fly that I'd never seen before that had an extremely tapered waist. Uh, it looked very, very convincingly like a wasp. And it wasn't until I noticed that reduced pair of hind wings called haltiers uh, that I was able to say for sure that it wasn't a wasp because it really uh, looked just like one, and I was I was quite surprised. Uh, I can give you the scientific name if you want it. It's yes, please. Quite, it's a uh, Physocephala tibialis. So, was even though apparently they're um, somewhat common along the east coast of the U.S., it was just a species that was unfamiliar to me. Uh, I am sufficiently aware of other fly mimics that I I did the double take and. Was, was quite surprised to see that. You can discover something new every single day, even in a city like New York, right? Absolutely. And this is a thing that I, I would recommend to anyone who visits a park, whether it's their local community park, say something that's less than the size of a city block, or if they regularly take long walks in one of, the, one of our flagship parks, is one thing that we can all do, um, and one thing that I have found a, sor a source of joy and comfort over the past 18 months is every day to look for something that has changed in the park um, that helps me mark the passage of time, uh, the way that, you know, is always happening in nature and that is always, uh, that these things, that things out there are always growing and changing. And every day, yeah, uh, I, I, I like to just find at least one thing that has changed and, and has marked uh, a new day uh, for me. And uh, 
by taking all of these pictures that I uh, of things that I have seen, I've I've been able to track and and compare between last year and this year. Uh, when were things blooming? When did I see that particular species of beetle that feeds on that particular species of plant? When did I first see this butterfly in the springtime? And uh, these things can also be valuable tools to scientists who study uh, both uh, the way that these things uh, live in nature, but also it can be a very useful way to track the progress of climate change. What's one of the more common questions that you get, say, when you have a school group that you're talking with? One thing that I actually often get is a question about how one actually becomes a park ranger. And the, the answer is actually that you simply have to be in the right place at the right time and take the test. Uh, it is a civil service title with uh, very few uh, specific requirements. All you have to have is some sort of advanced um, college degree. So typically they want a bachelor's, but the equivalent of four years of school without a degree um, is more than acceptable for that. And it can be in any, uh, any field. Uh, a lot of my coworkers, some of the most effective educators I have met are people with music and theater backgrounds because they're comfortable in front of an audience. But having an interest in history, um, having an interest in science, um, or, or actually having studied those things is, is equally good. So between being that and being 21, that's all that it takes to be a park ranger. Great. Andrew, anything else you'd like to add before we let you go? Uh, no, not unless you had any other burning questions for me. I just wanted to uh, thank you very much for this opportunity and for your time. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you. Andrew Brown John is an urban park ranger in New York City. You can learn more about New York City's urban park rangers and their many programs at nycgovparks.org. I'm George Bodarkey. My thanks to producer Madison Colombo. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening.